right, well, welcome to Living Hope Church. We're so glad you joined us. If you have children, kindergarten to third grade, they're dismissing for children's church, they can dismiss out the back uh, with Mr. Steve and Miss Tammy. Uh, if you have children that are staying with us and would like, there's activities on that back table. There's also a sermon notes that goes along uh, with the sermon that's designed for them that they can grab uh, and participate uh, with us. So if you weren't with us last week, we have paused our series on the Exodus, and we're going to pick it up again later in August. But for the next few weeks, we're in a series on the parables of Jesus. And Jesus often spoke in parables to share truth about difficult subjects. There are parables on the kingdom of God, on fairness that we saw last week, on money, on grace, on our purpose, on salvation. And today, Jesus is going to illustrate the value of the kingdom, the value of a relationship with God and the complete lordship. He desires. And this parable really ties in well with our Exodus series because throughout the Exodus series, the plagues and really the whole of the Old Testament, we see God's desire to be the Lord of our life, to be the prize, the most valuable thing in our lives. But the temptation for us, for the Israelites, and for Pharaoh was to worship and is to worship other things, to make God just one of the things of our lives, and to make us the ultimate God or master of our own fate. But God desires more than that. He desires to be Lord of our life. And so today's parable, it comes from Matthew chapter 13. If you'd like to head that direction, it's a short one. But I think it may be my favorite parable in the Bible because it so clearly and concisely expresses the value of our faith and the value of the kingdom of God. And despite its, its clarity, this perspective this parable calls us to remains a constant challenge for me and for all of us in the midst of our day-to-day lives. So we're in Matthew chapter 13. And we're going to start in verse 44. Jesus said, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all that he had and bought that field. Again, he says, The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had, and he bought it. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you uh, just for this passage of Scripture, Lord. We thank you for the time that we have to study it together. We thank you for the the joy it is to gather and read your word and to worship together. God, I pray that as we study this passage, you would uh, speak to us, Lord, that you would uh, help us to see the incredible joy that is offered to us through, uh, through you and through your forgiveness and through heaven that awaits. And God, I pray that as you reveal that joy, Lord, that it would, that you would call us to, to follow you completely. To surrender all, as the song said, and to make you Lord of our lives. So, God, we thank you uh, for who you are, Lord. We thank you for the gift we have been given and we have been offered. And, God, I pray that we would be people that follow you uh, holy. God, we we love you. Uh, Lord, we praise you. In your name we pray. Amen. So, throughout our study on parables and and our study to come, uh, we have said that the first step in studying parables is to understand the audience and the context in which Jesus is sharing the parable. In the case of this parable, we have to look back to Matthew 13, verse 36, and it reads that then he, Jesus, left the crowd and went into the house. His disciples came to him and said, explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. And so these two parables, the parable of the treasure in the field and the parable of the pearl, lie in the midst of a series of uh, parables uh, in Matthew. And at first, Jesus begins by sharing with large crowds, but then in verse 36, he leaves the crowd with the disciples, and they ask him to explain one of the aforementioned parables. 
And so what's important for us to recognize for today's message is that Jesus is alone. He's in the house. He is talking just with the disciples when he shares these two parables. And so the audience for these parables are the disciples, or in our case of today, he is speaking to those of us that claim to be followers or disciples of Jesus. So if you're a Christian and you are here today, he is talking to you specifically. If you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, then my prayer is that you would recognize the value of the kingdom, the value of forgiveness, the value of heaven that Jesus offers, and that you would follow him today. And so these two parables, they are uh, very similar stories, but there are some distinctions uh, among them. And the biggest distinction is that in the first story, the man stumbles into the treasure. Now, we don't know what this man is doing in the field. We don't know if he is plowing the field for a neighbor. We don't know if he's just cutting across the field and he stubs his toe on the treasure. We don't know if he's playing in the field with his son, playing catch with his son in the field. It doesn't say. But what it does say is that while he was in the field, he stumbles upon this priceless treasure. I said it before, but I I grew up in Portland, Oregon, and so we were close enough to the Oregon coast that we would visit uh, the beach regularly. And as we were walking on the beach or playing football or building a sandcastle, there were always these guys in these big giant coats. In Oregon, it rains like every day on the Oregon coast. And so there would be these guys in these giant coats with giant headphones on, and they'd have their metal detectors out there in their own world searching for treasure. So it was something we saw. Uh, Last year, VBS, the theme involved searching for treasure, and I got the chance uh, to use our friend Gary Powell's metal detector up in LaBarge, and I must admit it was kind of a, a fun activity and a fun tool to use. So we have some familiarity in our culture with this practice and this idea of searching for treasure. I read uh, this past uh, week of a guy named Terry Herbert in Great Britain who was one of those weird guys out there with the big coat and the, and the headphones on searching for treasure. And he discovered more than $5 million worth of gold and silver uh, in his neighbor's backyard. So treasure and treasure seekers are still out there today. But they were even more common, and this was a more common practice in Jesus' culture. This guy is in his neighbor's field. For whatever reason, he stumbles upon this treasure. That seems strange to us, but in their culture, there weren't FDIC-insured banks. And so this was what people would do if they had great wealth. If you had a huge pile of money and you want to keep it safe, you would go and you would bury it on your property. And if your town was being attacked, and as we've read in the Old Testament, that happened quite often in Israel. So you would, if your town was being attacked, you would bury your treasure quickly so that the attacking army wouldn't find your wealth, wouldn't find your money and take it. But then oftentimes that person would die or they would flee in the attack and no one would know where the treasure was. The land would exchange hands multiple times and no one would know of the treasure. In Qumran, they found a map of 64 different people in the community that had buried treasure and mapped it when an invading army came. So people in Jesus' day, they could relate with this story of stumbling into treasure more than we can. And they would have been excited as Jesus told this story. Because they dreamt of being that man, that woman, that child that stumbled into treasure. Just as many in our day might lean into a story about winning the Powerball or or getting the call that that long-lost aunt had died and left you millions in her inheritance. And so this guy stumbles into this priceless treasure. He like somewhat, it's kind of a weird detail, but he somewhat sketchily reburies the treasure. And then he joyfully skips off to sell all that he has so that he can buy that land where the treasure sits. Where the treasure sits. Now Jesus, he kind of skips over that ethical dilemma of reburying the treasure and buying the land. 
Uh, but parables, as we said, they were designed to get one big point across. So uh, if Jesus skipped over that, we will too, because that wasn't the point of the story. So the man, he goes and he sells everything he has. He goes to the owner and he says, how much do you want for that old field over there that you're not even using? So they agree to a price and he buys the land. And within this story, we read the three, I think, the three most important and amazing words in this passage. And those three words are, in his joy. In his joy, the man goes and he sells and gives up everything he had, everything he had worked for his entire life, and he gives it up, he sells it joyfully so that he can buy the land where the treasure sits. Now, normally, when you give up everything you have and everything you have worked for, That's not a joyful experience. But in this man's case, he does it willingly in his joy. And Jesus says that's what it's like when we find or stumble into the kingdom of God. Jesus says for the kingdom of God, for heaven, for forgiveness, for relationship with Jesus, we should joyfully give everything up this world has to offer. Because he is so much greater. His joy is so much more. If you think about your life, is that how you would describe your relationship with God? Is that how you would describe it when you are called to give up or sacrifice for God, for the kingdom, for your relationship with him, for the church? Or would you describe your relationship with Jesus somewhat differently? So that's story number one. From there, Jesus tells a second parable. And the, the theme is the same with a few minor distinctions. In the first parable, as we said, the man stumbles upon the treasure. But in the second parable, this man has given his life to search for this priceless pearl. Another distinction is that in the first parable, the man is seemingly a blue-collar, everyday worker. But in this second parable, this man is fairly wealthy. He is a white-collar merchant. This man has made a living out of buying and selling pearls, which were the most valuable jewel in the ancient world. Uh, In fact, they say uh, only the wealthiest of wealthy would own pearls. It said that most of Cleopatra's wealth was held in just two pearls. Two pearls that would have been valued at over $4 billion in our day. And so this man has made his living out of selling and buying these valuable jewels. But then when he discovers one so exquisite, so valuable, he immediately sells everything that he has, everything that he has worked for, to buy this priceless pearl. So in these two parables, we have two men. One is white collar, one is blue collar. One has relatively little, the other has quite a lot. One who wasn't looking for treasure, the other seemingly obsessed with the search for it. One poor and common, the other rich and educated. But both of them encounter something of such value that it makes everything else in their lives look worthless by comparison. This is amazing news because this means that the kingdom of heaven is available to all people from all different walks. And when they find Jesus, whether they're looking for him or not, whether they stumble upon the truth or search for it, it changes everything in their lives. And it's more valuable than anything else they know. So if you're here and you're like, and you feel like Jesus isn't for you, you feel like that Jesus couldn't possibly forgive you because of your past or your history. Or maybe you're here and you feel like you don't need Jesus because you're good enough on your own. Jesus in this parable is saying he is for you. No matter your position, no matter what your life looks like, 
He is for you. He is available for you. And his forgiveness is worth more than anything else you could experience. So in these, very, these two very short parables, we learn and we see some powerful truths about Jesus and the kingdom of God. The first thing that we see in both of these parables is the gospel or, or, or the kingdom of God is hidden. And when I say gospel, that is the, the story of Jesus. That's the good news of who Jesus is. And one of the themes throughout the book of Matthew is that the gospel is hidden and most people will miss it. And the first way that Matthew presents this is that, that, is that the glory of God or the glory of Jesus is hidden in a regular earthly body. So the gospel, first thing we see is the gospel is hidden in Jesus. You see, Jesus didn't come to earth with a glowing halo above his head as some churches paint him. Jesus wasn't physically impressive. He was born the son of a carpenter, an everyday blue-collar man. So the, the gospel, the, the hope, the, the salvation of mankind was hidden in this ordinary-looking person. If it were up to us, Jesus would have come to earth as a son of a king. He would have been royalty. He would have had the, the looks and the, the physical abilities of, of a Tim Tebow. Right? He would have the charisma and the speaking ability of a great politician. And that's what the Jews anticipated. That's what they expected. They expected a conquering leader that would give them freedom from their oppressors. But Jesus came in an ordinary body, as in part of an ordinary family. And he came to free them from the oppression of sin and destruction, not the oppression of an occupying nation. Jesus came looking like a normal guy. And because of that, many in this world would miss out on his glory. And many still today get hung up on that. And they miss out on who he was and the priceless value of the kingdom of God. So the gospel is hidden in Jesus. Another way Matthew tells us the gospel is hidden is it is hidden in the simplicity of its message. The gospel is hidden in its simplicity. The gospel message is not impressive on the surface. It comes to us in the form of the preached word that we can set aside, that we can argue with, that we can ignore. But in these words, in the message of the gospel, in the story of Jesus, is the power of new life. The gospel is simple on the surface, but it has the power to transform our lives. And so often the message of the gospel is either the book or the spoken word preached. Paul says that what he does is so simple on the surface. He says it doesn't take a lot of skill to preach the gospel. He says you just read God's words and, and we tell people what they mean, but within them come the power of God. Paul compared the act of preaching to when he would say to a lame person, be healed. He would say in those syllables are just words, but within them are the power to make the lame walk if the hearer receives them by faith. The spoken word of God, the gospel, is so simple, but yet it has the power, metaphorically speaking, to make the lame walk, to give life to the dead, to make the lost be found. And so while the gospel is simple on the outside, it has the power to transform lives for eternity. The kingdom of heaven, the, the hope of salvation is hidden in the simplicity of its message and in the preaching of its word. The power of the gospel is hidden in its simplicity. It's so simple that Jesus says a child can understand it. Yet it's so profound that Peter says the angels long to look and comprehend. The gospel is so simple that a five-year-old can understand to the point of faith. But so deep and complex that even the angels are still amazed by it. Finally, the gospel is hidden in ordinary believers. 
the followers of Jesus in his day and in our day today are just regular people who have been transformed by the gospel. Followers of Jesus still fail. They still fall down. They still look funny in the eyes of the world. They still say stupid things. But their lives have been transformed by the gospel. And the gospel is carried in us as broken vessels. Paul in 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 30 says this. He says, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were noble by birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human might boast in his presence. I'm not quite sure how to take that from Paul, but it's, it's true, isn't it? There's very little amazing about most of us outside of the gospel. And yet God has chosen us to be his vessels to carry the most important message ever known to those who don't yet know him. And it's in us, ordinary believers, that the gospel is hidden or carried to an unbelieving world. What an opportunity, what a privilege, what a responsibility we have been given. This idea that the gospel is hidden in the ordinary and the notion that so many people miss it is a reminder for us to pray And to pray with desperation for God to reveal himself and show himself to our lost friends and family. Pray that they wouldn't see the gospel as nonsense, but that they would see it as the life-giving truth of God and the hope of the world. We can share, but those around us will not experience the truth of the gospel until God moves in their lives. So we must pray that God will reveal his truth to those around us. So the first thing we see in these parables is the gospel is hidden, and it's hidden in the simplicity and everyday ordinariness of people. But we also see in this parable that the gospel is discoverable, and it's discoverable to those that search for it, but also to those that stumble upon it. And for those that find the gospel and those who are transformed by Jesus, it brings incalculable joy. We mentioned it earlier, but perhaps the three most important words in these two parables are the words, in his joy. In his joy, the man goes and he sells everything for the gospel, for the treasure. So that's our next point, is that the gospel draws us with joy. The man stumbles upon the treasure of great worth, and in his joy, he leaves the field, and he gives up all he has in order to buy the field where his treasure lies. In his joy, he gave it all up. J.D. Greer challenged his congregation with this. He said, let me ask you to consider, is this parable, is this the metaphor you would use to describe your encounter with Jesus? That it was like finding a treasure that brought you so much joy that you gladly left everything else to possess it. But he said, many of us, if we were honest, we might choose a different image. We might say that discovering the kingdom of God is like encountering a never-ending to-do list of things that constantly feel guilty about. Or maybe we would say discovering the kingdom of God is being like tied to a ball and chain that weighs us down and keeps us from having fun that we have to wear so that we don't go to hell. He went on to say from there, and that shows us just how little we understand, how little we comprehend about who Jesus is and the joy he is offering to us. So I want to give us three things that the joy of the Lord empowers us to do. And the first thing the joy of the Lord uh, gives us power to do is it gives us power to obey or to follow. 
It is the, it's not the, the strength of your will will never be enough to keep you faithful. But you have to be consumed by something greater, by a greater joy. And Jesus is that joy. When we grasp the joy offered, it allows us in our joy to give up the world for the kingdom of God. This illustration I could think of uh, from my life um, comes from sports, and that's where uh, most of my illustrations come from. But uh, you think about it, and, and the sport football is a crazy sport. Football requires you to sacrifice a lot. It requires you to sacrifice time in the weight room and on the practice field. It requires you to sacrifice and, and to give up your body and to, to experience pain to win a game. In high school, I played football and on, fr- on Friday nights, but then I would literally be unable to move on Saturdays and Sundays. And then it would all start again the next Monday. And so why would anyone sacrifice their time? Why would anyone sacrifice their energy? Why would anyone sacrifice their body for sport? And you did it joyfully because of the joy of winning, the joy of competing, the joy of the team. Winning made every sacrifice worth it. In fact, this funny thing happens when you find so much joy in something. When you find so much joy in something, those sacrifices themselves become joyful and something you celebrate and take pride in. The bruises, instead of being something uh, that you complained about, became a badge of honor as you remembered your sacrifice for the team, the coach, and the win. Those hours upon hours in the summer in the weight room were a badge of honor as you, as you looked at all that you gave up for your team. The miserable hot days of daily doubles in August and cold practices in November became worth it as you thought of the joy of Friday nights. And how much more joy should Jesus bring our lives than a high school football game? And when we find our joy in Jesus, it gives us the strength to obey and follow him. And like with the sacrifices for football, they go from being a sacrifice to a privilege and an honor. Following God, following uh, his instructions, sacrificing our time and resources goes from a pain to a joy and a privilege as we give back to the one who gave all to us and is our ultimate source of joy. I, I think one of the, for me, uh, one of the most humbling times of the year uh, is often a tax season. And tax season is humbling and has become a joyful because it's an opportunity to see the incredible goodness and faithfulness of God in tangible ways. And I enjoy tax season because sometimes I get a refund, and that's always a great day. But one of my favorite things to do is to tally up and to see where we spent our money that past year. Now, I'm different than some people, but, like, numbers speak to me. Like, I love numbers. And and because of who we are and what we make, it is rarely worth it for us to do one of those itemized deductions because the standard deduction is always better. But I always do it just because I want to see where the money went. As I look back, I have never had a year where God didn't provide for us and and give us more than we deserve. And I'd love to look back and to see how much we were able to give back towards him. And in that, something that was once a sacrifice and something I did begrudgingly has now become a privilege and a badge of honor to be a part of what God is doing in the world. To be a part of saying, thank you for all that he has done in my life. And so the joy of the Lord not only gives us the strength to obey, but the joy of the Lord gives us joy in the midst of obedience. Second thing. The second thing that the joy of the Lord does is it gives us contentment in the mundane or contentment in the day-to-day. 
Knowing Jesus this way can give you joy even in boring jobs or in the drudgery of the day-to-day of being a student or a mom changing diapers or going to work day after day. The joy of the Lord gives every moment a purpose. I heard this illustration, and the illustration was, imagine that you had been given a job, and your job was eight hours a day just to sit there and stuff and lick envelopes. And so one person doing that job is making minimum wage. I don't know what minimum wage is, what, $8 an hour? So you're making $8 an hour or whatever just to sit there and stuff envelopes. The other person is getting $5,000 for each envelope they stuff. Which person is going to have more joy in that job? Obviously, it's the one that's getting $5,000 an envelope. And for that person, what is the worst day for one is the best day for another. And when we understand and we embrace that every day, every moment has been bought by Jesus as an opportunity to honor him and find joy in him and give him glory, then even the most mundane tasks in life have purpose. When we embrace what we have been given, when we embrace who we are in Christ, when we embrace the joy of Christ, then we see that every day is a gift. And every day we have been given so much more than we deserve. And so this inspires us to be the best at what we do, moment by moment as we honor God in everything. If you're a business owner and you embrace the joy you have in God, it it inspires you, it empowers you to be a great owner. It inspires you to be a great boss. It inspires you to take care of the people and love people the way God does. When you embrace the joy and and that each moment is a gift from God, it inspires you and and gives you the strength to be the the greatest teacher, the greatest stay-at-home mom, the greatest student, the greatest barista, the greatest burger flipper at McDonald's that you can be. Because every day is a gift from God. When you understand what you have to look forward to and what you've been given, it gives you joy in the moment. Thirdly, the joy of the Lord is our hope in trials. When we understand what we have been given in Jesus and what our reward is, the joy of the Lord and our future gives us hope in the midst of the trials. When we know that our future is eternity with our Savior, when we know that our future is is eternity in heaven where there is no more tears and no more crying and no more sin, then it gives us the joy in the midst of the trials. Love this illustration. It says, uh, imagine a long lost aunt. That's That's our a version of finding that treasure today. Imagine a long-lost aunt that you didn't know passed away and they left you a million dollars. And all you had to do to receive that money is just go to the bank and sign and it was yours. Now imagine as you are on your way down to the bank and all of a sudden your car made, started making a funny noise and it broke down and the engine stalled on the side of the road. That's a trial. That's a, that's a bad day. But when you know that you're on your way to receive that treasure given, would you start hitting the steering wheel? Would you start throwing things? Would you start standing on the road and swearing at your car? Of course not. you got a million dollars waiting for you. So you would just abandon the car. You'd throw the keys in it and leave it for someone else. And you would skip your way on down to the bank. Because there was joy. There was treasure waiting for you that it was greater than the trial. Your treasure, your joy far outweighs the trial. And when our joy and our treasure is in Jesus, it gives us hope to endure the trials we experience here on earth. Because he is greater. Because heaven is greater. And I don't say that to discount the reality of your trial. We go through hard things in this life. But I say that to emphasize the value 
of Jesus. What you're going through is hard. It is very real. But the promise of this parable and the promise of the Bible is that Jesus is greater. That's how Paul in 2 Corinthians 4 could say, he wrote this. He said, therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So he says, we fix our eyes not on what is seen. Not on the trials of this earth, but we fix our eyes on what is unseen. And for us, we fix our eyes on Jesus. Because what is seen is temporary and what is unseen is eternal. Paul says Jesus is greater. The kingdom is greater. And there is joy in the kingdom. There is joy in Jesus. So we fix our eyes on him and we can have hope in the trials of this earth. So as you reflect on your relationship with God and with others, does your life reflect the joy that is available in the treasure of Jesus? Does your life reflect the joy of the forgiveness you have experienced? Do the people around you see joy in you every day and in every encounter? Do you serve and live with joy no matter the task? Or have you forgotten the grace that God has given you? And have you lost perspective in that joy? So if you find yourself this week not knowing that joy, ask God to remind you and to help you live out his joy this week. And that leads to our final point. And our final point is this, and that is that the gospel calls us to leave everything. In both stories, the two men had to leave everything in order to possess the treasure. That was a requirement. They couldn't afford the field or buy the treasure unless they sold everything. They couldn't hold on to some things and still possess the treasure. They had to sell it all in order to possess the treasure. So often we want to have the treasure in the field without having to let go of everything. We think we can still have Jesus and live our lives just as we want. And so instead of being in this kind of relationship with Jesus and experiencing his joy, we get religious. We talked about it a lot last week, but we try and make a contract with God saying, Okay, God, I will give you my Sunday mornings. I'll give you my Wednesday nights. I'll give you uh, something uh, off the top of my income. I will teach my kids to believe in you. But in return, I want eternal life. And I want you to help me when life gets hard. We say, other than that, God, you do your thing and I will do mine. I'll live how I want to live. I'll spend my money as I want. I'll do whatever I want with my friends. I'll raise my kids my own way. I will live my life as I see fit. I'll be God. I'll be Lord. I'll be master. And we call that good enough. That's religion and not a relationship with Jesus. But instead, when we understand what God has done for us, our response should be to say, it is all yours. God, you show me what to do with it. You show me what to do with my life, with what you have given me, and I'll follow you. Religion is where we do the minimum requirement to pay God off and to keep him off our back. But that's not repentance. And there is no joy in that. Right? That was Pharaoh's response time and time again in the plagues. And that's why so many in churches aren't filled with joy but we're filled with frustration in our walk with God. One pastor I read this week said this. He said, God is not interested in people who get involved in Christianity and keep him off their back. 
He is interested in those who see in him a treasure of greater value than anything else on earth. And they will gladly leave everything to possess him. So have you repented and followed God with everything? And then the second question is, are you willing to go wherever he leads and to do all that he asks? Jesus leads. Are we willing to follow? Let me close with a story that, that illustrates this kind of relationship for me. In Cairo, there is a small, dusty grave in an out-of-the-way location that you wouldn't know was there if you weren't looking for it. And there, there's a small tombstone that marks the spot, and it identifies it as the final resting place of William Borden, who is the heir of the Borden Milk Company. Now, Borden is still apparently a big company that does milk products in the southern United States. But back in the 1920s, it was one of America's largest companies. And William Borden was the heir apparent to run and to take over this company. He graduated from Yale in 1909, and the full reins of power were offered to him. But during his time at college, he became a Christian, and he had been so overwhelmed by the gospel that supposedly he had written in the flyleaf of his Bible, no rivals. Meaning that there was nothing that could rival the worth and joy of Jesus. And so after he graduated from college, he believed that God was calling him not to go back and run the milk company, but to carry the gospel to Muslims. His parents told him he was crazy, and so in the flyleaf of his Bible, he wrote the words, no refusals. He would give it all up for the joy and worth of Jesus, if that's what Jesus called him to. And keeping with that commitment, Borden turned down uh, several other high-paying job offers, and he enrolled in seminary instead. And after he graduated, he immediately went to Egypt to learn Arabic because of his intent to work with Muslims in China. Yet after just four months of ministry there in Egypt, he contracted spinal meningitis, and he died at the age of 25. He died on a ship en route to medical help, and somebody on board that ship, right before he died, asked him what he thought about his decisions what he thought about his decision to give everything up to follow God. And he said, no regrets. For William, his life was worth losing for the joy and worth of Jesus. And there on his tombstone in Cairo is a brief description of his sacrifices for the kingdom and for the Muslim people. And then there's this simple phrase. And it says, apart from faith in Christ, there is no explanation for such a life. What a statement and what a summation of this parable. Apart from faith in Christ, there is no explanation for such a life. There's no explanation for a life that would give up the the things and the treasures and the joys of this world for Jesus. But when you understand the value of who Jesus is, that kind of life makes sense. Because he is the treasure in the field worth leaving everything for. And he is worth every temporary sacrifice we make here on earth. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. No rivals, no refusals, and the promises that one day you will say, no regrets. So is your faith marked with joy that would lead you to give it all up for Jesus and for the kingdom? Or is your your faith and your life marked with something else? Does your life exist to know Jesus better, to glorify him, to rest in his joy, to make him known? Or does it exist for something else? Does your life express the greatness of God or the greatness of you? The greatness of this world or the greatness of something else?
I think for me, this is one of those passages that every time I read it makes me pause and evaluate my life. To evaluate, have I given everything out of my love and joy for the kingdom? Or have I given it to try to play religious games with God? Would I be willing to go and do whatever God calls me to do? Or am I living for something else? Am I living for my safety, for my comfort, for my pleasure, for the American dream, for the worship of my family or my kids? Am I where God wants me to be? Am I doing what God has called me to do? Or am I trying to appease God to get him off my back? Am I trying to earn my place in God's kingdom or my actions an overflow of my joy and gratitude? Is God my greatest joy? Is he my greatest treasure or is it something else? So just a second, Lori, she's going to come and play. And as she comes and plays, I want to kind of wrap us up and then we're going to take a minute or two just to respond. And so I think the first place we can be is maybe you are here today and you have never experienced the joy of Jesus. You've never found that treasure. You've never repented and followed after him. You've never experienced the joy of forgiveness and the assurance of a future in heaven with him. If that's you, would you today, would you humbly bow your head and would you surrender your heart and repent and turn to him? Say, Jesus, I want you to be my joy and my treasure. I want you more than anything this world has to offer. I want to follow you. Or maybe you're here today and you are a follower of Jesus. You've made that decision, but you've never taken that first step of faith that the Bible calls us to. The first step of faith the Bible calls us to is that after we respond and follow him, we are to be baptized and to declare to the world that I'm with Jesus. He is my joy and my treasure. So maybe you're here and you've followed Jesus, but you've never followed him in that step of obedience. Maybe today you need to say, God, I'm ready. I want to follow you and I want to declare it to the world. Or maybe you're here and you are a follower of Jesus and you need to today say, God, I want to follow you completely. I don't want you to just be a part of my life, but I want you to be my life, and I want to follow you. I no longer want to play religious games. I no longer want to be in a contract relationship, but I want to follow you completely. You need to surrender today, to surrender all and say, God, I want to follow you. And maybe you need to, maybe it's an area of your life God has revealed, and you need to start following him first in whatever area that is. I'm going to pray for us. After I pray for us, Lori's just going to play for a minute or two. And I'd ask you in your seat just to bow your head and to pray and to ask God what it is he is calling you to do. And then as he leads, follow. God, we thank you for who you are. God, we thank you that in you is joy we cannot even comprehend. And God, I pray if there's anyone here that doesn't yet know you, Lord, that you would reveal that joy to them. That you would reveal what you are offering to them, Lord, and that they would, they, they would surrender their lives and follow after you. And God, I pray for many in this room that are followers of you. Lord, I pray that you would, in us, that you would reignite that joy. That you would remind us of who we are and who we are in you and in all that we've been given. That you would remind us of the many great and good gifts you give us day after day. That you would remind us of our forgiveness we have experienced in you. That you would remind us of the promise of eternity and that you would make that real to us. And God, that we, like this man, in our joy, would gladly let go of anything to follow you. God, I pray that we would be a people that, that don't play games, that we would be a people that, 
They don't just try to appease you, but that we would be a people that follow you in joy. So God, I pray that in, in these next moments, Lord, that you would reveal what it is you need to reveal to us. That you would clearly call us the deeper faith. Lord, that you would give us the courage to follow after you. God, we love you. We praise you, Lord. We thank you for the joy that is offered in you, Lord. And I pray that we would follow you wholeheartedly. And it's your name we pray. God, we thank you that in you is treasure beyond our imagination. And God, I pray this week, Lord, that you would continue to reveal yourself and your goodness and your joy and all you've given to us. And God, I pray this week that we would, in our joy, go as we follow after you. And God, I pray there is anyone here that doesn't yet know you as their Lord and Savior, Lord, that you would reveal your truth to them. Lord, that you would reveal your truth and your hope and your joy to many across our community. God, we love you and we praise you. It's your name we pray. Amen. All right. Well, once again, thank you so much for joining us this morning. I had a few announcements in here somewhere. Uh, first of all, if you're new to Living Up Church, there should be a welcome card somewhere in the area of you. If you can fill that out and place it in the box in the back table, uh, we would appreciate it. That's also where you can place your tithes and offerings if you consider this your church home. As we said, we're headed to kids camp uh, this upcoming week. Uh, if you have questions about that, come see me or you can see Melody. Uh, and we will leave here at the church at 8 a.m. So try to be here by then. Again, if you have questions, uh, come see us. If you need a registration form and haven't filled one, out of the, one of those out yet, come see us as well and we'll get that to you. Uh, we have Summit Youth Camp coming up on Castro Mountain in two more weeks, so July 25th to the 30th. So if you have questions about that, you can see me or Justin in the back. We also have registration forms if you need one of those as well. Uh, Melody's going to come and she's going to share some other announcements with us with more excitement than I have. I have a little more enthusiasm. Um, I have a couple of announcements and I, I'm going to just, it's going to be story time with Melody for just a second, but uh, I didn't tell her I was going to do this. Uh, so, okay, I coordinate a lot of things here at church, um, but a, a lot of what I coordinate is like helping all of you guys get involved and serve. And I really enjoy that part of what I get to do here. That's how I get to serve at church is help everybody else find their place to serve. Um, and we've had a lot of new people, a lot of you are new faces that have come and haven't yet gotten involved in a way to use your gifting to help and serve at church. If you would like to talk to somebody about how to do that, like how to use what God has given you to serve here at church or other places, you can talk to Rondi or you can call me um, and I'd love to help you do that. And one of the ways that we can do that as well that we have coming up is VBS. And I love sharing this story because I think it's really fun, but a fun history lesson about VBS 
For those of you that don't know what VBS is, it stands for Vacation Bible School, which is a really weird name. Um, and I, I know a lot of churches that change it to like summer day camp and all these different things. But I always keep the VBS because it has a very rich history. Um, and the history of VBS, it started in 18, this is going to be short, I promise, sort of short. <laughs> but it started in 1890, actually, um, VBS did in Illinois. And there was a public school teacher there who looked, um, she also taught Sunday school. And she looked out over the kids in her church and she said, we need more time to teach them about Jesus and to teach them about God. And then she saw this summer break as an opportunity to teach the children about God in a more concentrated way, okay? So more than you could just get on Sunday morning. And that legacy has carried through VBS for a really long, well, since 19, or 1890. That's a really long time. Um, and that's still what we do here. And so we don't just do VBS because it's a fun thing for the kids to come and play and eat a good snack, right? Like that's not our goal. The goal of VBS is that we spend an entire week focused on the stories of who Jesus is, what he's done, and how that matters to these kids in our lives. And so it's a focused, concentrated week of Bible teaching for the kids. Um, they get m as much Bible teaching in a week of VBS as they do in one to three months of Sunday school, if you count that. So it's a really, it's, it's not just something we do, it's a really great thing. So we have VBS coming the first week of August. Um, it's going to be a really fun week. I have a lot of people already signed up to teach. But what we could really use now is a few different things. So I'm going to give you the announcement here for VBS. So uh, that was my intro. Here's the announcement. Um, three ways you can get involved with VBS. One way is by praying. On the back table, I was going to hold one up. I forgot. Um, on the back table, there's like a prayer guide that has, we're about a month out from VBS. It gives you something specific you can pray for every day um, until VBS that helps ask the Lord to move as these children come on our campus. Last few years, we've had between 60 and 80 kids here learning about Jesus. I mean, that's awesome. That's as many as we have on a Sunday morning. Like, we need to be praying that the Lord would move. There's a verse that says, unless the Lord builds the house, the labor is in vain. All the work we do for VBS is for naught if we don't pray and ask the Lord to show up. And everybody can get involved in that. All of you can pray for VBS. Second thing you can do is you can invite people. Um, we, all of you know, you may not have kids, but you got neighbor kids, kids down the street, grandkids, kids on your soccer team, kids on your baseball team. Like, everybody's connected to kids somehow. VBS is for kids kindergarten through fifth grade. So if you have a kid that you know that's going to be kindergarten through fifth grade, we'd love to have them come join us. We also have a preschool class for anybody that's helping. So if you're helping and you have younger kids, we do have that. We don't open that up to the public because it gets crazy. Um, if you have 30 preschoolers, it's a little wild. So, uh, But we do have that class if you want to help. Um, and then the last thing you can do is you can help. There are all different ways to help. And trust me, I can help you find the right place. Um, we, uh, I, there are, you can help, and if you're, so we, some people are kid people, they're like, I love working with kids, we will help you get connected in teaching kids, other people are like, I don't really like children, and that's okay, <laughs> like, we cannot love working with children and still help at VBS, there's things like registration, if you can only help for one day, helping that first day get the kids all signed up, so we have their parents' contact information, just in case they, like, scrape their arm at rec whenever they call, um, there's also, you can help with snack. I mean, feeding 80 kids a snack during the day is a challenge. Um, Steve and Anita do a really great job with that, but if you want to help, um, help pass out snack, do that kind of thing. And then the other thing we need is just people to love the kids and be helpers. Um, I have most of the teachers, I could use maybe one more teacher, but I have most of them set. I just need people to come and like 
help the teacher corral the kids, if that makes sense. Like, you know, I mean, just helping them get to their seats, helping them get their snacks, helping stand at the bathroom line to make sure everybody goes in and out. You know, that's what I need is some more bodies. And really, I will help you find the right spot. We're not going to put you in a place that's going to be overwhelming or too much for you. There's all kinds of places, ways to help, but we need a lot more people to get involved. Um, we also love having teenage helpers if any teenagers want to help. Um, everybody does have to have, you have to go uh, do a background check that we will provide for you. It's really simple, but we do do a criminal background check, make sure everybody should be working with kids, it is working with kids. Um, but yeah, that's my big, long announcement that if you want to get involved in VBS, come see me. It's really great. Um, and then invite kids. You can sign up online. Uh, it's on Facebook. I will have registration forms next week as well. I forgot them again. Uh, but I'll have registration forms. You can take those too. And then the kids can sign up the day of too. So um, we'll have it all ready. But last thing, I have one more announcement. Sorry, I'm not up here very often. They shouldn't give me a microphone. Uh, but the, uh, the last thing is I also coordinate worship team. I don't know if you guys have seen me up there, but I do. Um, I don't love doing it by myself. I love having a team of people to sing with me. If you like to sing, if you're a closet shower singer and you think you can do it, um, it, we will, the songs are not that hard to sing, guys, and we could really use a few more people to help. Um, we also would love to get a few more instruments going. Uh, we, we play piano right now because that's what we have, but we would love to have other instruments. If you play drums or guitar, come see me. Uh, but yeah, we'd love to get more people involved. It's a great way to serve. It's on your schedule so you don't have to commit to every week. Um, I always coordinate the schedule with everybody so you know who's there. But anyway, that's my announcements. Let me help you serve at church. All right. Last thing, she actually missed an announcement. On the back table, it's hard to believe, isn't it? Uh, on the back table, there is the updated childcare schedule for July and August. So uh, if you help with that, uh, the schedule is on the back table. Uh, thank you so much for being here this week. We hope you have a wonderful week, and we hope to see you back here next week. You are dismissed. Thank <laughs> you.